0: Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Ashley, and today I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. You may know him as Dr. B or the gut health MD on Instagram. Dr. B is an award-winning gastroenterologist, internationally recognized gut health expert, and the New York Times bestselling author of Fiber Fueled. And the Fiber Fueled Cookbook, which just came out. We'll talk about that. He sits on the Scientific Advisory Board and is the U.S. Medical Director of Zoe. He's authored more than 20 articles published in peer reviewed scientific journals, has given more than 40 presentations at national meetings, presents to Congress and the USDA, and has taught over 10,000 students how to heal and optimize their gut health. He lives in Charleston, South Carolina with his wife and children. You can find him, like I said, on Instagram at the gut health MD on Facebook, also at the gut health MD and his website is the plantfedgut.com. Please join me in welcoming Dr. B. Welcome to the show, Dr. B.
1: Thank you, Ashley. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited.
0: I'm excited as well. So before we get into everything, can you start us off by telling us how you became plant-based?
1: Well, it wasn't a plan. In fact, if you went back 10 years ago and you told me in the future, you will be plant-based, let alone like someone who's advocating publicly for a plant-based diet, I would have told you you're crazy. There's no <laughs> way. There's no way. Because 10 years ago, all my favorite foods were like not the plant-based foods. I mean, yes, there was, uh, you know, if I went to Jimmy John's, they put like alfalfa sprouts on my Jimmy John's sub- submarine sandwich. Of
0: course. But that was
1: like, yeah, that was like the extent of it, you know? There was no dedicated interest or desire to increase the um, amount of plant food in my diet. But what happened is that I was in my medical training. So I'm a gastroenterologist and it took me 16 years from the beginning of college for me to actually finish all of my training. So four years of college, four years of medical school, um, four years of residency because I was also a chief resident. And then four years at, we were just talking about this a moment ago, at the University of North Carolina, where I was in a combined gastroenterology, clinical training, and also an epidemiology training at the School of Public Health. And so anyway, so 16 years, and in this process, it's hyper rigorous, I found myself in a situation where I needed to find shortcuts. I needed to prioritize convenience in my life, because I didn't have any time that led me to eating a very unhealthy diet filled with junk food and a lot of fast food. And I won't lie, I loved it. Mm -hmm. It tasted great and it was inexpensive and it was quick and low effort. And it checked a lot of the boxes of what I needed in that moment. But the problem is I didn't anticipate this, but I was suffering consequences. They were more long-term consequences that came along slowly over time. I became unhealthy. I was in my early thirties and I was 50 pounds overweight. I had high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, high anxiety, low self-esteem, low energy. Basically, I just wanted to curl up under a blanket in a dark room by myself and be left alone. Like that's that's where I was. Things in my professional life were way beyond any expectations that I had for myself. People would think that everything was perfect and I didn't feel that way.
0: Yeah,
1: I knew I needed something to change, but even though I was at that point already board certified as an internal medicine doctor, and I was in this prestigious gastroenterology training program, I knew that actually what I had been taught wasn't going to fix my own issue. Mm, Yeah. So I started searching for an alternative choice and I was trying to avoid having to change my diet because I enjoyed the food I was eating.
0: Of course. Yes.
1: So... I tried exercising my way out of this hole. And the problem is that I could grow stronger or faster, but I could not actually fix these health issues with exercise alone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I was, um, so you have spent some time at the university of North Carolina. So you're going to know where I'm talking about here. I was on a first date with this woman who crazy enough, 10 years later, she is now my wife. And we just had our third child less than three weeks ago.
0: Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah.
1: So yes, yeah, so we have three children together, but like in this moment, you would have never known that this was going to happen. We were just on a first date and getting to know one another. And we were in Carborough, North Carolina. So it's like just down on the street from Chapel Hill and the restaurant is called Acme. Yep. And you know, you know exactly what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. And so, and this is pork country. And so like, I'm getting the pork chop and I look over. And this person is ordering, like, it's not even on the menu. She just says to the waiter, can you put some black-eyed peas and some collards and some mashed potatoes onto a plate? Make it look nice. And so the waiter obliges her, and she cleans her plate, and she raves about how delicious it was, and she looked amazing. Mm -hmm. She looked like health was an effortless thing for her. Mm. Yeah. And I have been struggling. And that was enough to open up my mind to the possibility, maybe the food that I love, maybe the food that I was raised on and is celebrated in our family is in fact causing harm to my body. And so I started with a very small change. This was not a radical or revolutionary thing. You know, I still needed convenience. I was an early thirties, single male, and I was not a gourmet chef. And so I basically, I went home. One day, instead of going to Hardee's for dinner, I went home and I pulled out a blender and I threw a bunch of stuff in there and I pressed the button. And there were about 35 or 38 ounces filled with green smoothie there. And I drank it and I felt amazing.
0: Ah, yes.
1: And it energized me. And I felt like I felt like prior to this, there was this weighted blanket that was like covering my body. And was holding me back, mm-hmm. and I felt like this was lifted. Wow. Like, like I have just discovered something that our, my body has been starving for. Yeah. And it was enough for me to say, I want to try that again and feel that way again. And so I came back and I did it again, and then again, and then again, and then I stopped thinking about it, became a habit, and then I started to address my coffee issues Mm, uh, with too much sort of like Splenda and full fat dairy. Then I started to address my soda issues, drinking two liters of soda a day. And I started making these changes. They started adding up and, you know, within a few days, uh, my skin is clearing and my hair is starting to grow thicker. My energy levels are surging.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And over the course of months, my, my, You know, weight starts to rapidly decline and I start to feel empowered the way that a man should feel in his early thirties.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that you highlighted too. It wasn't this radical change that you did overnight. It was really one step at a time that you took to kind of get
1: there to where you are today. I don't believe in radical changes. Even if you're motivated by the ethics of animal welfare and the environment, I, I believe that we have to first acknowledge, even if the motivation is to be completely vegan and you are no, nowhere close to vegan, we have to first acknowledge the way that our body works. Our body is not designed for radical change. Our body is designed for adaptation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: much like exercise. Yes. You don't go to the gym on day one and lift, you know, 270 pounds on the bench press.
0: Yep.
1: Right. You start with the bar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And then you work your way up from there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Diet is the same way. I think that's great. And we talk a lot about how to like make this lifestyle sustainable for you. And part of that is taking things step-by-step.
1: Yeah, totally. And so I think that it's, it's an important message because it's, it has to do actually with our gut microbiome and, you know, our gut microbes. What's exciting is that, so first of all, living inside of us is this complete ecosystem of life, just teeming with life, wall-to-wall life inside of us. And they're not human. They're not a no. part of our body. They're as alive as you and I are. And there's 38 trillion of them, which is a crazy number.
0: Yes, it is.
1: And trying to quantify this, if we open our arms as wide as we can, and we pull down all the stars inside our galaxy, that's about 100 billion stars, we would have to put 380 galaxies full of stars into our colon. Wow. <laughs> In order to Match this number that actually truly exists in every single one of us. Well, this this life is there for a purpose. They're not just hanging out. Mm-hmm. We evolved with them, and they are actually integrated into our physiology. Like we need them for digestion, our metabolism, our immune system, our hormones, our mood, our brain health, all are connected back to these microbes. And what's exciting. Is that this is like this life force is not something that is rigid or stuck or that you are born with and can't change? It is adaptable. And the choices that you make today will impact the microbiome by tomorrow.
0: I like that. I like the word adaptable too. So what do you what do you mean by that? How can we make changes? Because most of us were raised similar to what you were talking about on the standard American diet. That's a big part of how. We were raised. And so, how can we make these adaptations?
1: So, before I even talk about the microbiome, let me sort of broaden, zoom this out a little bit, and let's talk about the human body and how amazingly adaptable we are. And we just accept things as if they're just the way that they are without even celebrating how insane nature is.
0: Mm.
1: No human in history has jumped out of bed and run 26.2 miles without first preparing to do 26.2 miles a marathon, but we are capable of doing this. And there's a process that we go through in order to build up to 26.2 miles. And that, that process allows our body to adapt to what we are doing. And if, it's, if, if you think about like the different critical pieces, this is not just your muscles, this is your heart. And your heart, believe it or not, changes when you become a runner, it actually increases the volume of the chambers and it gets more efficient with the squeeze. So you can have less beats and more blood flow because you are a runner. This is why people who are runners have a low heart rate. Your lungs change. They can fill with more air. You have more blood vessels running through them to allow gas exchange to take place. These parts of our body that we think a heart is a heart, lungs are lungs. No, they are changing during our life in response to the choices that we are making and guess what your gut microbes change in response to exercise too it's fascinating to ponder how adaptable we are and you wouldn't run a marathon without training for it you shouldn't try to make a radical change to your diet without training for it mm. much like preparing for a marathon there is a process that you put your gut microbes through where you build up to a moment and you allow them to adapt with you It is a series of, much like training for a marathon, it is a series of challenges. You start with small challenges and eventually you are doing bigger challenges, but you're prepared for those bigger challenges. You've built up to that moment. And as you challenge, your gut catches up. Each time you make a small change, you wait a couple of days, your gut microbes will catch up to that small change. And then you re-challenge on a higher level. And by stepping up over time, You are actually allowing your body and these microbes to adapt with you. And you are allowing them to grow stronger and become more capable. They become designed for what you're asking them to do. And you are enhancing their functionality so that they become capable of doing things that you didn't think they were able to do. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you may think you're not capable of running a marathon, but you are. If you work through the right process, you can get there. You might think that you're not capable of eating legumes or whole grains, or you know, insert whatever food it is that's causing trouble for you. But you are—you mm-hmm. just have to work through the proper process to allow your body to prepare for that.
0: What does that kind of look like? Like, how can we start making these adaptations to build a stronger gut? So that for someone who's saying, "Yeah, I can't tolerate beans," or I struggle with tolerating these types of foods, how does that? How does that look?
1: Um, it's actually fairly simple it goes back to a Beastie Boys song from the 1980s and it's called Low and Slow.
0: Nice, yep.
1: Low and slow is the tempo. Low and slow is the tempo. And you start to hear this, okay? Because when you start low, similar to exercise, Hmm. you are not challenging your body too hard. So you start by first identifying what food you want to reintroduce or what food you struggle with and you want to fix this food intolerance. And let's pretend it's legumes. You start low. Low is not the five bean chili. Low might literally be like one to three chickpeas. And that's okay. Yeah. Because you have to meet your gut where it is right now. Ooh. Meet it there by starting low and then go slow. So you start to gradually increase and ramp up your consumption of these foods. And over the time, your body will adapt to this and you eventually get yourself to a point where you are no longer being specific in how much food you're consuming because you eventually find that you get yourself to a place where there is full functionality. There is no restriction. And now the training wheels are off. Mm. You're just eating.
0: So Dr. B, you're telling me that if I struggle with eating beans, it's possible in the future that I can create a gut that will digest them just
1: fine, or I can tolerate them just fine. 100%. There is no doubt in my mind, but the, but the issue is that you, you have to accept that the solution is not deprivation. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You have to accept that the solution is actually reintroduction. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And to create an analogy that will help people to understand this, you know, we, we tend to believe what our intuitive mind tells us. Like, oh, if it causes pain, then it must be bad. Right. Right. And if it feels good, then it must be good. Yep. But that's not true. When I was eating ultra, when I was eating the junk food, fast food diet, I felt great when I was eating the food. Of course. Right. That doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that it was good for me. Yeah. And we can all think of a lot of sort of uh, substances that you could introduce into your body that make you feel good. That doesn't mean you should be doing them. Yep. When it comes to pain, there are scenarios where I'm not saying the pain is good. I'm not saying embrace the pain. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that sometimes the thing that can cause pain, you actually just need to rehab to overcome mm. the pain. If you hurt your knee, there is one solution that allows you to exist without pain in your knee. Stop walking. Yep. And you will suffer the consequences of that. No one makes that choice because we all want the functionality of being able to walk and run and Mm -hmm. play tennis or basketball, right? We want to restore that functionality and be back to that. And the process of restoring functionality is not avoiding the knee. It is working through what's happening with your knee to rebuild it, to make it stronger To restore that functionality, you do this with a physical therapist, they help and guide you and you end up in a place where there is no pain and it's fully functional. When you suffer consequences from legumes, the solution is not to avoid the legumes. That's like stopping walking. The solution is to have an approach guided by like, I could be your physical therapist or you could work with a registered dietitian, but you work through a process of basically challenging your gut with legumes slowly incrementally, not in a way that causes pain, but instead in a way that's below the level that causes pain. And in doing this, you basically are able to restore functionality. And then the training wheels come off. And then you can consume and the food that was your enemy is now your friend.
0: Mm. Which is really encouraging because I feel like low FODMAP, you know, is is pretty popular. So is gluten-free for people who don't necessarily need to go gluten-free. And then also there's all these tests that you can take online that show you what you're sensitive to so that you should eliminate, you know, 20, 30 plus foods from your diet, but you're saying our, our gut is adaptable. We can rehab our gut so that these 20 plus foods that we're eliminating don't need to be eliminated.
1: Yes. And I want to comment on those real quick. Uh, so research studies that have looked at a low FODMAP diet where people stay low FODMAP or a gluten-free, free diet where people stay gluten-free or a paleo diet where people eliminate legumes Mm -hmm. and whole grains. In all cases, what we see is that the gut microbiome becomes less healthy. And in my clinical experience, if you derive a benefit from a symptom perspective, like if you say, "Oh, my gas and bloating are better, it's a temporary improvement. And then actually the hole ends up growing deeper. Wow. Because Your gut microbiome becomes less healthy. So now new food intolerances start showing up. It is uh, a spiral into something that you don't want to get into when in fact we could be building up towards something that's better. And the low FODMAP diet, by the way, was never meant to be implemented the way that it is being implemented on the internet. It's a misinterpretation by people who don't actually understand the development of the low FODMAP diet, which was at Monash University in Australia. And the diet was always meant to be temporary elimination, temporary restriction, and subsequent reintroduction and escalation. So the way that I am teaching is the way that Monash University intended the low FODMAP diet to be because it allows you to bring these foods back on board. Why would you bring these foods back on board? You bring them back on board because these are prebiotic foods. They feed and nourish your gut microbiome. And the last thing I want to add real quick, Ashley, these tests, uh, they are widely available. You can actually do them at home, right? Blood tests, poop tests, hair tests, saliva tests, like I don't even know what other bodily thing they're going to come up with. But Um, I have not come across a study that has validated these tests. Mm. Now, if you find one, if you're listening to this and you have a study that you believe validates food intolerance testing, send it to me. I would love to talk about it. And if I'm wrong, I will publicly talk about that. And I will share because I'm about evolving with the science, but I have not seen science that backs them up. And here's what I've seen in my clinic. I have seen people who do a test and they, they, on the other side, they've spent $600 and they are tremendously confused yeah. and they don't know what to do because the test says that they have a food intolerance and they go, Dr. B, when I eat that food, I feel fine. Okay. If you eat that food and you feel fine, you do not have a food intolerance. <laughs> By definition, a food, to- food intolerance is the manifestation of symptoms that come from food. Flip side. There are things on the food intolerance test that were not positive. And they say, but Dr. B, when I eat and I consume garlic, like it hurts, I have pain. The test says that I should be eating garlic. Yeah, that's, that would be a false negative. Once again, these tests are not accurate. You know what's accurate? Quite simply the process that you and I are discussing right now, which is being systematic and knowing how to remove a food see how you feel and reintroduce the food. And by basically doing it in that way, you can determine whether or not you have a food intolerance. And then once you know what's food, what foods you're, you're intolerant of, you can go through a process of healing the gut and bringing them back on board like we're talking about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you see this a lot, even with fad diets as well. People who chase fad diets or who have a history of dieting for a large part of their lives changes in the gut microbiome as they do that as well. It sounds like a kind of a similar situation.
1: Yeah. So if you think about a fad diet, let's pretend it's January 1st. And like you're doing a cannonball into this brand new diet, that's um, super popular among your friends or the people that you work with. All right. So this is a radical change. Um, and your body is not designed for radical changes. And you are putting a stress or a strain on your body in doing this. We are very familiar with the idea of yo-yo dieting. This is what happens when people often do fad diets. The reason why is because your body is not adapted to what you're doing. You may actually lose some weight in the process of doing this, But the problem is that you have not created healthy habits and it's not sustainable.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And so you get into 30 days and you're not really truly more well off for it, even if you have lost weight. But then the problem is your 30 day thing is over and you go back to eating the way that you used to eat and your weight skyrockets. And you actually, believe it or not, are less healthy. Even if you end up at the exact same weight that you started at on January 1st, you actually end up less healthy than when you started. Mm. Because when you lost weight, you lost not just fat. You also lost muscle mass. And when you gained it back, you did not gain back your muscle mass. And so um, I'm a believer in small, simple, common sense, sustainable choices. Performed on repeat. Mm. I think that the one health hack that truly exists, like not a big believer in health hacks. I think that they're kind of uh, a mirage, Mm -hmm. but the one health hack that does truly exist is the idea of healthy habits. Because if you can sustain something to the point of turning into a habit, then you have something that will pay dividends for your body without you even thinking about it. Yeah. that's important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It really is. Yes. So with that too, Dr. B, I wanted to ask you, how does our gut influence our cravings? Cause similar to what you were talking about before is like when we're eating the standard American diet, I mean, the foods taste good and that's kind of what we crave. Um, but how, how does our gut affect our cravings and our taste buds?
1: Well, we believe that the gut does affect cravings and taste buds. There's still room for additional study in this arena. Uh, we're kind of just getting started, but like, as an example, I would imagine that some of the listeners absolutely love chocolate and crave it. Of course. It. Mm-hmm. And there are some listeners that are probably like right now they're saying, eh, you know, I like it, but I could leave it too. I'm not, I don't really care that much. Okay. They have actually discovered that among listeners, uh, among people who crave chocolate, there is this metabolite that is present that explains like, oh man, like you want this chocolate because there is this metabolite or this thing in the blood that is present. And where does that come from? And the answer is your microbiome. Your microbiome is actually sending a signal which is basically motivating you to gravitate towards this food. Now this is one specific example of how we can develop cravings towards specific foods. But I think that it's likely that there's a process that exists for many foods where the gut microbiome is involved in creating our uh, cravings. And I will just say that I think the just sort of general anecdotal experience of most people who change their diet to a plant-based diet is that they will they will agree and discover that the foods that you once loved and craved, it takes a little bit of time. Like yeah four to eight weeks, but you actually stop craving those foods. Mm. You may feel that you're addicted to whatever it may be, sugar or red meat. And you actually, when you emerge on the other side of this, that addiction is gone. Those cravings are gone. And instead, you start to develop cravings for foods that you never thought you could actually be obsessed with. Yes. And so like you know this, part of how I knew this is that I would go, for example, on whether it be vacation or a business trip, but you're away from your usual routines for a couple days, and you're coming back on the plane. And what are you thinking about on that plane, that return flight home? You know, you're gonna go hop in your car. Where are you going? Where are you gonna go for dinner? And For me, back in the day, it would be like, okay, I'm getting a ribeye steak and a glass of red wine. And now it's like, okay, I can't wait to go to that salad shop with a kombucha. It's going to be awesome.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So over time, your taste buds change. And it it does. I think that's a good point too. It takes a little bit, especially when you're transitioning to plant-based, which a lot of people listening here are, that it takes some time to maybe get through some of those cravings that you've once had.
1: Yeah, totally. It takes time. And, you know, I think that it's important like to, we've been generally talking about this, but it's important to acknowledge that this is a process.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's kind of like taking a uh, following up a, a trail, All right? So it's not a roadmap. It's not precise and perfect. You're exploring and you're moving towards your goal, right? Your goal is to like, end at the other end of that, like end at the other side of that trail. Maybe it's the top of a mountain with a beautiful view, something like that. Right. You want to get there, but it's a journey and it's not a perfect journey. You might stumble on a route. You might take a pause off to the side for a little bit and get Mm -hmm. lost. Right. But at the end of the day, if you make progress and you ultimately get to that end point, which is your goal, You should feel good about yourself. You have accomplished it.
0: Yeah, definitely. I wanted to switch gears and ask you about probiotics. Should we all be taking one? When should we use one or shouldn't use one? Or what are your thoughts on that?
1: So, probiotics are living microbes that have been demonstrated through clinical research to have benefits for human health. You have to fit those criteria. You have to be a living microbe and could be bacteria, could be fungi. You can't just be any bacteria or fungi. You have to actually have clinical research backing up that you can help humans. Probiotics exist inside of us, they're already there. And quite simply, if you feed them, they will become empowered. Probiotics exist in fermented foods. There was new research out of Stanford university, actually a couple of my friends, professor Christopher Gardner and professor Justin Sonnenberg found that in a 10 week clinical trial, When people increased their fermented food consumption, basically from nothing to consuming fermented foods on a daily basis, over 10 weeks, they increased the diversity in their gut microbiome and they reduced measures of inflammation. So those are, to me, two options that every single one of us should be doing. We should be feeding and fueling our gut microbes that are already there, and we should be turning towards fermented foods because most of us are not. Mm. do we need a capsule that contains probiotic bacteria? The answer to this is, I think, uh, a little more nuanced than perhaps what you will hear on the internet, where people tend to have very uh, quick, quick opinions. Mm -hmm. on They work or they don't work, period. End of story. And so here's the issue, Ashley, you have a background in public health. Let's talk about Randomized control trials. Great. Okay. So this is the gold standard. We basically are acknowledging these as the best test, aside from uh, a systematic review and meta-analysis, we're, we're compiling, you know, the totality of data and and sort of eliminating bias. But like a randomized control trial, uh, we will compare two things. So like if it was a probiotic trial, we will take a group of people, and we will give. Them, you know, a month of probiotics, and then they will cross over and they will do a month of a placebo, and they can't tell the difference. And in a perfect world, we don't know the difference either. And they're just doing this and they're reporting how they feel. And then after it's all over, we we basically, you know, compile the data and we say, okay, well, this is what we see. Do the probiotics work? Okay, in order to say that the probiotics work, it has to be like a significant difference that we can measure with our statistics. Here's the problem. There's a problem with randomized control trials. They're imperfect because they are population averages. Mm. And we are unique individuals. You have a unique gut microbiome. There is no one on the planet with a gut microbiome like you, Ashley. Same goes for me. Same goes for the person listening to us at home right now. Eight billion people on this planet, not a single two people have the same microbiome. Identical twins. How many microbes do they share? Only about 35%. Wow. Okay. We are completely unique. Yeah. Our response to a probiotic capsule is going to be completely unique and it is not appropriate or fair to take the person who in a clinical trial did see a radical improvement in their quality of life on the probiotic relative to the placebo and tell them that they are wrong when the population average perhaps did not show that difference, right? Because the population average is taking into account all of these different microbiomes, yeah. but in the population, there are going to be this subset of microbiomes that they need, or they really do well with this probiotic. And there's going to be a subset. In all cases, there's going to be a subset that they don't actually do well with this probiotic. It doesn't help them. So it's not about like, what does the randomized control trial say? And this is not being anti-science, by the way. This is actually just being nuanced with the science. And I know you can appreciate that, Ashley. Yes. Um, But the answer to this is more personalized. We have to be willing to say, do I feel better with a probiotic? So I would always argue the first step should be diet and lifestyle. The first step should be prebiotics to empower what we already have and fermented foods. But speaking as a gastroenterologist and having dealt with a lot of people who are suffering, I've seen a bazillion people who have really, really seen improvements in their life with a probiotic.
0: Yeah.
1: And if you are one of those people, it's a trial and error thing right? Because we don't know. It's not about the population average. It's about you. Does this help you? And if you introduce the probiotic and it benefits you, as long as you're comfortable with the cost, I support that. And on the flip side, if you introduce the probiotic, it doesn't matter what the clinical trial says. Clinical trial could say, this is great, but you introduce it and you see no benefit. Stop spending your money immediately.
0: Perfect. That's good to know. Yep. I like that. So Dr. B, I'm curious if you could summarize just a few pillars of how to create a healthy gut or some things that you've mentioned in your book, which we'll talk about here at the end too.
1: Okay. Number one, I've already mentioned fermented foods. Yep. That's the first pillar. Number two, recognize the power that exists in dietary fiber. If I walk out in the street, 19 out of 20 people in the United States are completely inadequate in their fiber consumption. And they're asking, where do I get my protein from? And they're way over the top in terms of the amount of protein that their body needs, but they are wildly inadequate in their fiber. They need to start asking, where am I going to get my fiber from? And the reason why is because in my favorite fiber trial of all time, this was a a systematic review and meta-analysis, Andrew Reynolds, The Lancet, 2019. Dietary fiber, when we consume more of it, you are less likely to have a heart attack, less likely to die of heart disease, less likely to have three types of cancer, less likely to die of cancer, less likely to have a stroke, less likely to be diagnosed with diabetes. These are four of the top 10 causes of death in the United States. We could be addressing our public health issues by simply consuming the appropriate amount of fiber. And the reason why it works is because fiber is prebiotic. It is fuel for your microbiome. And when it contacts your microbes, they produce short chain fatty acids, which are the most healing, most anti-inflammatory compounds I've ever come across in my 20 years of study in medicine.
0: Mm.
1: We need fiber. That's number two.
0: And I'm I'm assuming you're not talking about like a fiber bar or like a powder fiber.
1: So there can be benefit to prebiotic fiber supplements, but it should not, it should never be that we're trying to supplement our way out of a bad diet. It should be that we are changing our diet to include more dietary fiber. And there may still be a role for some prebiotic fiber supplements.
0: Okay.
1: Number three, it's not just grams of fiber. As you as you just mentioned, Ashley, it's not just grams of fiber. It's varieties of plants. Every single plant has fiber. You don't have to ask me where the fiber is. It's in the plants. It's easy. Every single plant has fiber, and every single plant is going to feed specific families of microbes. They, it's hard to imagine because they're invisible to our naked eye, but they're alive, and they're much like us. They are picky eaters. So they don't all like kale. We need variety because when we eat a variety of plants, we are feeding all of them. So perhaps the most important of the four pillars focus on variety in your diet. This is applicable to everyone. I don't care what diet you eat. It could be any diet. I'm glad you're here and eat more variety in your diet.
0: Hmm.
1: Abundance, not restriction. Um, I should just add real quick. This is not just by the way, a Dr. B ism or idea. This is actually clinically validated the largest study to date combining diet and lifestyle with the health of our gut microbiome found that the single most powerful predictor of a healthy gut microbiome was the variety, the diversity of plants in our diet. In that study, the healthiest people were eating at least 30 varieties of plants per week.
0: Okay, 30 per week. That's good to know. 30 per week. Yep.
1: All right. And then number four, I think it, it it's worth saying this. It's so easy for me and I'm very guilty of this and I've just proven it based upon the, our show so far to date. It's so easy for me to just focus on nutrition the whole time and pretend that the only thing that matters is the food that goes in your mouth, but you can heal your gut without lifting a fork. Lifestyle. Don't lose sight of the importance of well-rested sleep and movement, like staying physically active. This is not just an in the gym thing. Taking a walk in your neighborhood is amazingly good for you. And um, stress, Mm. reducing stress, dealing with things that are unsettled in our life and, um, circadian rhythm. So it's kind of sleep, but it's kind of not because the thing is you could get eight hours of sleep, but playing on your tablet or phone or laptop or in front of your television from eight o'clock until 11 o'clock at night is disrupting your sleep hormones And you may sleep for eight hours, but it is not well-rested eight hours of sleep. So it's important for us to be cautious about like engaging with technology late in the evening. It's a better time for us to be unwinding and reading a book.
0: Yeah. Reading a book like Fiverr Field, perhaps.
1: Like Fiberfield or my new book, <laughs> The Fiberfields Cookbook.
0: Yes, which when this airs, it'll be out and you'll definitely have to check it out because it looks amazing. Dr. B showing it right now on the screen. Yes, super yeah. exciting.
1: And, and what's cool is that I was, I try to be, you know, I, I try not to be too promotional about um, my book in the middle of the show, but like most of the show, if you've enjoyed the show, we have touched the tip of the iceberg of what you're going to find in my new book, The Fields Cookbook, because the book is more than a cookbook. It, it does contain 125 recipes. It's full color photography. Um, I think you guys will love the photography. It's beautiful. But it goes beyond just this. Um, actually, the recipes don't start until the back end of chapter four. Nice. There are 11 chapters. And I teach an entire methodology. Everything that we've talked about, restrict, observe, work it in. That's actually in the book. Low and slow mm-hmm. is the tempo. That's called training your gut. That's a chapter in the book. One thing that we haven't really talked about in great detail is like, how do you find the root cause of your problem? I have a letter for that. G, Genesis. Mm-hmm. What's the root cause of your problem? And what I've built is something called the growth strategy. Genesis, restrict, observe, work it back in, train your gut. And then, like, literally two minutes ago, we talked about stress and exercise and, you know, blue light. And that's holistic healing. Yeah. So, this is the growth strategy G R O W T H. This is how you actually train your gut, optimize your gut, overcome food intolerances. That's what I'm teaching in this book. It's all new.
0: It's exciting. So definitely go out and check out fiber, the fiber-fueled cookbook. And if you haven't read fiber-fueled yet, also pick that up while you're out as well, because it is an incredible book as well. And like you said, what we talked about is just the tip of the iceberg to the content that you have in these books.
1: Yeah. And I, and I have so much more to be honest with you. You know, I got a lot to say and I, I'm I'm just, I feel like my position, Ashley, it's, this was not the plan. This is just where I woke up one day, on myself. But I feel like my position is that I feel like our healthcare system has this, this problem where you go to your doctor, they don't teach you, they don't listen to you, they don't talk to you about nutrition. And if I could empower you by teaching you and talking to you about nutrition and making it so that the time that you spend with your doctor is valuable time, then I can make a meaningful difference in your life, even though I'm not directly your doctor. And that's kind of what my platform has become. Fiber Fueled was a book about, okay, like, let me show you this exciting revolution that's taking place in science and how you can eat to empower your gut microbiome. It's crazy. And it's awesome. That's Fiber Fueled. And now the Fiber Fuel Cookbook is like, okay, cool. Now that I got your attention, Let me help you actually do it. So unhealthy gut or like you're struggling with food intolerances, let's fix that. Let me show you how the growth strategy doing pretty well, but you want to have more variety in your life. Okay, cool. Got 125 recipes for you. Let's do it. You're not eating fermented food. Okay. I got a chapter on that. Let me give you some recipes. We can make sourdough. We can make fermented salsa. We can make fermented carrot sticks. Like I got a lot of choices for you. It's not sprouting oh my gosh, we all should be sprouting. Let me show you how to do that too. So it's really about making it your own, um, acknowledging your unique biology, finding what works for you, but me putting on the table all the tools and then you get to choose what you want for yourself.
0: Beautiful. That's really exciting. So, well, thank you so much for coming on the show and just sharing your wisdom. We really appreciate it. And like Dr. B said, definitely be looking out for fiber-fueled cookbook, which is out now, and then check out the fiber-fueled book as well. Dr. B, again, thank you so much for coming on.
1: It's my pleasure. And thank you everyone for listening and hanging out with us. And, and if you want to connect, um, come find me at the I got an email newsletter that people really love. I got free resources that like are in addition to these books that you'll find on my websites. And, um, and then you can find me on social media as the gut health MD.
0: Yes, definitely check out Dr. B on Instagram. He's amazing. He's always posting, posting content, which is fascinating. So absolutely. All right, Dr. Amazing. B thank you so much. My pleasure thank you so much for listening to the plant-centered and thriving podcast today if you found this episode inspiring please share it with a friend or post it on social media and tag me so i can personally say thank you until next time keep thriving